my idea is I like to measure things because, uh, uh, you know, everybody has guesses and about you name it. And um, the more complicated systems are, the more guesses people have and the more, and it's very easy to be wrong. But the nice thing about reality is if you measure it carefully, it will tell you about what its nature is, even if it's confusing. So, and you can sort that out by, by continuing to measure carefully. And um, I like that. So I, I made a career out of that, which is um, measure things carefully, see what they say, and then use simulation of the, the physical phenomena involved to try to explore that. And if it don't, they two don't agree, then there's something wrong with your understanding or this understanding of simulation. And that's uh, usually thought of as a problem, but it's really not, it's an opportunity because it means you're onto something. Mm -hmm. that that isn't understood well. Good morning, Danny. I am Shelby Ruiz and I'm from the Integrated Design and Construction Lab. We have a new friend and colleague with us here today. We met at ACEEE, the summer study for buildings, uh, back at the end of August. And I'll let you introduce yourself here in just a second, Danny. But just a reminder of this season of the Building Heroes podcast. We are talking all about building operation, what it takes, who it takes in the plays and decisions that make a building operate successfully. And what the IDCL does mostly is integrated to commercial building settings or utilities and what that means for high performance buildings. But Danny and I are gonna to talk today about what a residential building operation looks like. And the building operator now becomes the homeowner, their decisions and their comfort levels and preferences are really at stake here. So Danny, do you want to give yourself a brief introduction, talk about your history, how you how you got to be where you are today? Sure. Thank you very much, Shelby. So uh, it was a pleasure to meet at ACEEE uh, back in August uh, because I'm often able to see a lot of old friends that I work with in the Pacific Northwest. My original interest in buildings actually began in 1978. At that point, I was actually a young man in Florida deciding that for some reason I wanted to know all about how houses worked and how houses use energy. And the advisor I had, I confessed this to him and said, what should I do for graduate school? And he said, first, you should change your idea about what you want to do, because there's no such thing as that. You should get a degree in chemistry or perhaps mechanical engineering or something like that. That would be much more appropriate. He said, besides, you know, Florida has nothing to do with the rest of the planet, really, because the climate here is completely different. He said, but most of the United States is much colder. So I listened to him. And so I applied to graduate schools and I went to the coldest graduate school that would accept me, which was University of Montana, which at the time I think was 7,931 heating degree days, very cold place. So I went there and I got my graduate degree, but I continued to study houses and that's been my interest. 
in a career that's uh, nearly 40 years now. And I've confined myself to that. So now I study them. I not only uh, did I study them with the Northwest Power Planning Council and the Pacific Northwest, but also uh, I studied them with the University of Central Florida in Florida now, and then also in Europe with the Joint Research Center for the European Commission. So where we're studying how houses will adapt to the new conditions we anticipate in the next century. So that's a, a snapshot of my career, but um, uh, within that, I also learned various things in terms of how to try to make houses more successful in terms of using less energy and being more comfortable for people. But that also means that you need to understand people because a building is, you know, there's never been a, a building that used any energy. It's all the stuff that you put in it. And then the people turning that stuff on that's using energy. It's not the building itself. So the question is, how are you, how are you designing houses and buildings so that they are integrated with the people that are in them so that they're pleased, happy, and they're able to use less power and still say, hey, this is a nice place to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the comparison between going to work and being in a commercial building, somebody that has the expertise that's been trained to operate these really complicated complex systems versus going home and being told, you know, you're supposed to do this or you're supposed to do this in order to save energy and also be comfortable. But as a homeowner, especially those that don't have the expertise that especially like you or even I have, that's just leading us into the fact that we want to talk about myths today, myths of residential building energy efficiency, mythology about energy use and how human behaviors and understanding what those human behaviors are truly affect the systems that surround us every day and most of the time our most intimate settings. So uh, is there anything else you wanted to set up as far as all of the topics we're going to cover? Well, uh, you know that the one topic I want to talk about a lot, which is one we talked about at ACEEE, which is mm -hmm. we, have, we have been designing our buildings based on a stable climate for, for um, hundreds and thousands of years now. But now we're dealing with a circumstance where we're going to have warmer conditions than we've ever experienced as a species. And so that means that we have to be looking ahead rather than looking behind in terms of how we're doing things. And I was illustrating for you, um, one of the things I do love is the power of building energy simulations where we can use weather data, hourly weather data that exists for various places and examine what that weather data is telling us. And for instance, looking in the Pacific Northwest, we can see that if we look at the weather data from 1976 through 2004 and predict what's gonna be happening for heating needs in the Pacific Northwest, and then compare that to more recent from 2007 through last year, and then use that with a very detailed simulation, we find that that in, in most of the climates that I examine, that the um, heating needs are going to go down by roughly 5%. They vary from one place to the other. But that's just one snapshot, right, over, over half a century. So we're going to be 
we're not building buildings to last for 50 years. We're, you know, the, in Europe, the idea is uh, typically when you build a house, it should be a generational thing. It should be there for gen one generation after the next. And 500 years is a, is a reasonable target before major renovations needed. And so when we think about that, then we're, we're probably looking at some changes relative to what we end up deciding. And, and uh, the other thing that I was able to see uh, that was, you can learn some surprising things from examining weather data too. One of the things that we expect with climate change is that the degree of cloud cover is going to change over time. And we can see that in the Pacific Northwest, people say, oh, the gloomy Pacific Northwest covered with clouds, you know, the joke about Portland, sun breaks and so forth. But the reality is that while heating has gone down by about 5%, the amount of solar radiation that a, a PV array, solar electric array would create has gone up by an average of over of more than 10%. So that's not a good thing necessarily. You know, you, you're getting more sun, you're getting more PV output, you're also getting drier conditions. So, um, you know, this is an area that is the overall umbrella that we need to think of relative to designing future buildings is rather than designing on past climate, we need to consider that we're going to have warmer conditions likely over time than we've ever experienced. And so we need to account for that somehow in our buildings. And so there's ways of doing that and uh, they include Obviously, the thing that most people think about, most people think about when they think about energy efficiency, they think about insulation. And that does work for uh, reducing uh, heating use in particular. It works for reducing cooling use to some extent. But for cooling use, which is also predicted to go up somewhat, other things matter, like the surface reflectance and window characteristics and window sh exterior window shades. And exterior window shades are actually kind of an interesting topic too relative to this business of having people and users in buildings that are happy because glare is not, a, not your friend. You know, most people don't like that. Dappled right. shade coming from shading device or tree, that's a much better. So anyway, we, we need to consider as an overall overarching view the fact that designing buildings in the future, we need to think about how climate will be changing. Yeah, and this is potentially unrelated, but topic-wise, going that direction to prove your point. I did a study last summer talking to centurions and folks that have been in the area for 70, 80, 90, over 100 years of their entire lives and talking about how they've seen that in, in their own memory of, you know, when I was a kid, we just rained all the time and it never got above 90 degrees. And then we have heat waves for multiple weeks in the Pacific Northwest now, and the buildings just weren't ever equipped for that kind of heat. And they're surely insulated and designed for colder weather, or at least, you know, lukewarm, wet, rainy, UK style weather. But when it starts getting hot, those buildings just aren't capable of handling it. And thinking about mists, and I know you live in Florida, which is, like you mentioned, a very vastly different climate than it is up here in the upper left. But our buildings aren't equipped for that sun exposure. They're not equipped to have air conditioning and cool to the capacity that 
one day we're probably going to need not only for comfort but people's own well-being and over the passing of time I think it's really important to tell that story and foresee it both into the future from the past so where do we want to start do we want to talk about the myths or the case of why residential energy efficiency is so different than what other people think of when they think of high-performance buildings well I you know the we started to talk about that because um, if you ask the average person what will make your your house energy efficient, they'll always talk about insulation, and they're not really wrong about that. So, so it's good to have that. Um, but they're they can really be off on certain things that they're not aware of. Like you, you think of well, insulation is what's going to make the building efficient, but actually. The insulation is going to make it so that it's the temperature changes only slowly inside relative to the outside. But there are complications. For instance, um, people can often have the idea that, oh, this house has a basement. So the basement, it doesn't matter that there's no insulation there uh, because it has a basement. But that's really not so. You know, um, having uh, insulated basement walls, for instance, in Pacific Northwest, makes for a much more comfortable place to do laundry or whatever the activity is down there. And that's one thing that people miss often is not thinking adequately about the fact that, that the ground, that that's another place where you, you might want to insulate or you might be able to take advantage of it. So, so for instance, in summer, most people know that, that in a basement and even when it's quite, quite hot there, that the basement's much cooler. And that's because the ground temperature any place on earth at depth uh, approaches the average annual temperature in that location. And, and it varies in a harmonic way, uh, but, but still it does. And that also means as climate change happens, the ground will be getting warmer. So <laughs> that means that the, the cooling that you get from the old idea about a root cellar or something, the, it will be getting warmer than it used to be. The other weird thing that no one thinks about is the amount of heat necessary to heat hot water will be going down because the temperature of the water coming into your water heater is actually tied to the ground temperature. Those pipes pass through the ground, typically at about a one meter depth, right at the frost line. And that makes it so that the amount of heat necessary for heating hot water will actually be changing too. So, right. so there, are, there are these things that, that are they're not missed so much as they're just kind of omissions. Like you're not aware, not thinking, well, you know, uh, that that may be changing and it will be changing. And then how much will it change? Well, fortunately, we don't live long enough to find out how, how extreme that could possibly become because back in the Cretaceous, for instance, there, you know, there were some beautiful dinosaurs roaming um, South Dakota and North Dakota. So and they, where were they? They weren't running around in prairie. They were in swamps in very yeah. warm conditions. So, and the CO2 levels are actually higher than that now. So we're going to, there's going to, I'm not saying start building for the swamps now, but, you know, we will, there will be a challenge <laughs> relative to, we're going to have to do something about this, about considering that climate will matter. And, yeah. and then relative to efficiency, what oh, can we yeah. do to make, to make the best efficiency decisions, it's not just insulation. Actually, I would say more often than not, it's the equipment. So mm -hmm. if you focus on the stuff you put in that plugs in or 
goes into a circuit or uses a natural gas pipe, those are the things that really make a difference. And that's, there's a large mythology associated with a variety of things about that, uh, that we can talk about. Sure, yeah. And I know a lot of the topics that we focus around here, specifically at the lab, being more behavior focused too. We were chatting, and this is more of a recap of everything we talked about in California, but in, in the dynamic of people going to office or leaving their home, they're not necessarily aware of what is consuming energy and how much that is. One, maybe they don't care, but two, they're not footing that bill. And when somebody's at home, they're probably painfully aware of how much energy their home is using, but they don't really know how to make sense of that. It just shows up and they have to pay the bill and they may not have the best skills or behaviors or know what to do about that. So, so how do we, how do we um, increase the knowledge of homeowners and that residential energy efficiency dynamic, Danny? Actually, I think you, you really hit it in terms of describing what the fundamental issue is. So it's complicated. And so most people don't have, there, there's no way with electricity, for instance, to have any idea about easily what's going on because you can't really sense it. You, you certainly can't touch it, taste it, do any of those things. So your ability to sense what's going on is, is subject to just not knowing. Then the idea is what stuff is using something and what matters. And uh, as I mentioned to you, which is how this all got started, there's a whole mythology that gets set up about that people have, then they create their ideas like, hey, my bill was $200 this month or something. It's like, how did you do that? How did you make that kind of mistake? And then people say, well, I know how it's, you know, you know your house. There's like, all, there's all those people there and they have all these devices plugged in and it's using all this power and that's why this is all happening. But actually it turns out that those devices really don't use that much power. Mm -hmm. So when um, an iPhone charger is plugged into the wall and it's doing nothing, you think, well, unplug those, but really they're not using much power as well. The, if you measure that it's 0.2 watts, nothing to be worried about. And if you're charging a, an iPhone or iPad, four watts a piece. So you can yeah. add all that up and say, well, I've got 10 devices. You've got some really eager people at home and they're doing a lot. But well, still, you're not going to end up with huge numbers. Right. There's, there's the dynamic too of what people know consumes energy is probably, like you mentioned, going around and unplugging things or making sure the lights are turned off when in our modern world, especially with they're using LEDs in their house, their light bulb in their bathroom probably isn't going to be the thing that's consuming very much energy. And people go out and buy appliances and the Energy Star label says, you know, this refrigerator or this washing machine or this water heater is going to cost you X dollars amount a month. And they look at that and they think, oh, that's actually not that bad. But when you tack it on to all the other things that doesn't have a number associated with it, or they don't realize that it's constantly taking energy to, to exist, yeah. to, to make a house run. That's, that's not only a knowledge gap, but it's, it's more of like a fear of the unknown of you don't know what you don't know until you realize you don't know it. And well, when you get a monthly bill, you, you know something, you know, you know but it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a point and it's not telling you how you got it. It's like so, if, if you, if you were, if, if suddenly just, you got a, a 
a message from from a policeman. They said, "You have a ticket." Mm-hmm. It's like, a, yeah, I have a ticket. Filing your taxes. What, why do I have a ticket? No information. You just have a ticket. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's so like it's kind of like that. You you have no idea about why it is. So that's part of the prop, part of the issue, and this is why the mythology gets started. There are reasons why the bill ends up the way it is, and there are certain things that really do matter. Um, for instance, leaving heating or cooling on really does matter, and then there's the human tendency to wishful thinking, which is leave the TV on. It's better not to turn it on and off because it uses more power when you turn it back on, or Leave the computer always on. It's, you know, don't even shut the laptops down because it uses more to start it up. And certainly it's less convenient. And there, but there, those aren't even good examples anymore because I think most people aren't using, aren't, a lot of people aren't using TVs. But the idea holds, which is the leaving lights on and leaving things on. The idea is I'm just leaving the heating on because when I turn it, when I turn it back on, it uses more than when I just let it run. That's wrong. So, the switches always make a difference and, and who operates the switch, the person. But the person would rather believe, I don't wanna operate the switch. I don't wanna mess with it. And this is kind of another interesting facet relative to this whole thing, which is there's no reason people should want to try to save energy or want to understand it. They would rather not want not understand it. It's kind of like uh, like insurance or something. Like I don't want to know how insurance works. I know there's actuarial tables and so forth. I don't want to care about it. I have yeah. other things I want to do. I want to I want to read books. I want to prepare meals. I want to see my friends. I want to do this and that. I I want to run my life. I don't really want to care about energy mostly. So this yeah. means that and it's we not just need... because it's distracting. Is that because it's an emotional and mental load of there's so much to understand that it's 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 like giving you analysis paralysis of I'm I'm so overwhelmed by all the things that I probably could understand, but I don't want to because I don't want to understand my interest or what do you well, think? Here's that a is? better example. So. Uh, like paying attention to a lot of numbers, like you can get devices that allow you to measure the power use that you've gotten instantaneously. And I like these, but that's because I've been a nerdy guy for a long time. But you can also get them so they'll measure individual circuits. And so you can find out exactly where power is coming from. But mostly people don't care about such things, nor should they care about such things. But it's possible for people to decide they care about lots of numbers lots of seemingly meaningless numbers a lot. They care about those numbers a lot. And you think, well, what examples are there? And that's called the stock market. You know, so those numbers are otherwise just kind of ridiculous. But when you say, well, this is future vacations, you know, and so forth, and or what have you, then then suddenly you're deciding to care about it. The average price of electricity in the Pacific Northwest is still quite low. So in Pullman, I looked at the average number, and I think it's was 9.8 cents per kilowatt hour or something like that. And you're, about right. And it's it's generally not high. So you're not going to get people to decide, hey, I'm just totally obsessed with reducing my energy, but they might be obsessed if they're constrained, like power is interrupted. Like say there's an earthquake or like in California, brownouts associated with firestorms or or hurricanes, things like this, where you have 
very limited power that's available, then suddenly you decide you care about this a lot. Because electricity is one of those things where when you have it, it's not a, you don't have a huge value at, attached to it, but when you don't have it, suddenly you'll be willing to do lots about that to try to maintain it, to be able to, for instance, continue to use your iPhone or be able to have an espresso, you know, or, or standard coffee, whatever the case may be, you know. Those so daily for me, comforts of I life. Will, coffee is pretty important. So yeah. you decide, you know, what's important. And energy use is usually not the major thing. Being comfortable, though, and having quiet might be. So something like insulated glass and a window. I'd say that we, in our, in my own house, we changed out the windows, oh, I think 15 years ago, and they're nice double glazed units with argon fill. And the, the greatest thing that Lisa and I noticed about this was not the fact that it did improve comfort in the rooms and it probably saved some energy. Um, and it looks like it did, but so what? What we noticed was that when they mowed the lawn next door, it didn't matter. <laughs> we couldn't hear them anymore. It was over. And that really, you know, something like that can really matter in terms of your comfort. So we have to remember that houses are not just for saving energy. Houses are for keeping rain and snow off you, for providing a warm or cool condition, providing a healthy condition in terms of ventilation, providing a safe haven in terms of a place where you can feel safe. And also you can enjoy yourself. You know, you can yeah. curl up with a book or do whatever um, silly mayhem you decide to do in your own life. You know, your house is its main value, not the energy use. The energy use is just something that happens while you're doing those other things. Mm -hmm. So do you want to talk more about your measurements and some of the predictions that we were talking about? Or should we just jump right into our myths? And I know we discussed before this conversation that the mists you may experience in Florida in a very warm, humid climate to your experience in the Pacific Northwest and specifically, you know, here in Pullman, we're on the east side of the state, which is much drier and higher and far less wet than the west side of the state. Looking at, I looked at Pullman, Lewiston, Spokane, Portland, Olympia, Seattle, Missoula, and Boise, and I looked at mm -hmm. how temperatures and heating change from those periods. And okay. Lewiston warmed up a lot, you know, um, but Boise was surprisingly, you know, it's not tropical, but I mean, you know, it's <laughs> it's it's nearly as warm as Olympia. So I was really kind of shocked by that. But I also saw this thing that I mentioned, which is that the cloud conditions have changed a lot in the last 50 years. We don't know exactly how that's going to play out in the future, but that's what I saw now. And that, that'll even, even if you run the simulation, uh, I did share with you that one of the most powerful things about these simulations that are available is you can, you can run them in an optimization mode. So you have like a hundred different options you plug into them, like increase the insulation or change the windows or add this efficiency of a heat pump or change the, the lighting or uh, change the washing machine all, all you know all the all the things that are available and then you just throw all those things in the hopper and say 
you figure it out. <laughs> so, so tell the simulation you figured out. And what it does is it simulates every one of the hundred things and there's a cost attached to them. I think this comes from National Renewable Energy Laboratory. They created this database for this thing called BEOPT. And then it figures those out. And what it showed was that it's actually gotten easier to get to quote zero energy homes in the Pacific Northwest for two reasons, because it's gotten a bit warmer and it's gotten less cloudy and that makes the PV output actually increase. That doesn't mean it's a quote better thing. It just means that's just kind of the way it is. And um, uh, that's what I saw from it. Relative to mythology, um, there's you know, the knowledge that one has of, do it, of someone like you that studies these things or someone like me where you actually study you know, how much will an Energy Star washer save you? Mm -hmm. And most people have no idea, really. They think, well, it's going to save me a bunch of electricity and so forth, but usually it won't. It saves you some hot water. But um, they have no idea of, like, how important is that versus, uh, like, say, a, a manufacturer comes through with a tankless gas water heater, you know, and they say, this is going to save you 40% of your, your energy bill, and that's baloney. Because first, because water heating is not 40% of your energy bill. And so, as I, I mentioned to you before, there's never any way to save more than what something uses. So, yeah. so this is a problem that happens for the public because manufacturers are always making the mythology worse by creating their own. Uh, they'll tell you that, for instance, since water heating is only about 25 or 20 percent of your of your overall energy bill, then that's what you can reduce from mm -hmm. things that reduce energy use. Now there are things that really will cut that back, and one of them is a heat pump water heater. So there's some real things that are kind of beyond the mythology that will will really help. But you know, it's kind of uh, useful to have what I call a BS meter that there's no way to save more than what you use in anything. Right. So you need, you need to be very careful about claims from manufacturers. So try to get the best information you can from, for instance, for Energy Star, from EPA. They'll probably give you better ideas. Or, you know, from the Washington State Energy Extension Service, I'm sure they're still around. They are, uh, yeah. And uh, they'll be able to tell you, hey, yeah, Energy Star washer, great idea. Will it save you 30% of your bill? Absolutely not. But still a good idea. It'll save some water, save some hot water, you know, and um, there's certain things that are, you know, more easily predictable too. Like for instance, predicting how buildings use heat and cooling is actually quite complicated, but there's other things like predicting how much electricity solar electric PV systems create that you put on your roof. That's very predictable. It's, mm -hmm. uh, there are ways to make really nice, healthy mistakes that you don't want to do. You want to avoid shading. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and that includes from chimneys and things too, and for other buildings or trees. But, but otherwise, PV, uh, solar electric, is actually quite predictable. And so that's one of the things that there's a lot less uncertainty about. Yeah, and there are so many resources out there. I know you mentioned our um, tool that you used and things like Energy Star and EPA, they exist in order to help inform the consumer, but things like, you know, your extension service, every single 
state in the United States has a land-grant university, and those land-grant universities are here to disseminate research and knowledge to your everyday folks in the state. So, Danny, this may be more of a side conversation, but I do want to include some of those resources in our companion document so that we can get those out to our listeners here, um, which we'll put together shortly after this. But just a heads up that I, I, I would like to have all of those resources available and we can maybe not workshop that together, but make sure that our listeners and our homeowners and our states and everybody that, you know, lives in a house has the information or at least has a head start so that we can start finding some of that measurement knowledge that's out there for themselves. So do we want to dive right into the myths and talk about what people believe and then perhaps what the actual case is and compare we can, and contrast. We can do some of those. Um, yeah, sure. that's so, so we have a long list here. Um, we have a long list and we're not going to get through it. So, so, th so okay. the idea would probably be to- We're the Mythbusters uh, today. Find, find the ones that, you know, we think people would love to know about that they, they don't. So let's just start at the top. Yeah, yeah, that one's a good, that's a goodie because almost everyone believes that one and it's wrong. Yeah, let's, let's play Mythbuster. <laughs> starting, starting off number one, let's tell. Number one is, tell. I set the, it's cold inside. I want to set the thermostat to higher to, so the house will heat faster. No, it won't heat faster. <laughs> it will, it will heat at the rate that it will heat. Uh, a furnace or a heat pump can only heat at a given rate depending on the furnace, depending on the gas output that is in the burner and the heat pump, depending on what the temperature is outside. Uh, it's not going to heat more quickly. It's going to heat at, the, at a given rate. It will heat to the point that you told it to get to. You say, go to 80. Well, before it gets to 80, you'll probably change your mind about 80, but it's not going to really change at all what that number is. But it does make it possible to overshoot and make mistakes. So it, there are some systems of variable speed heat pump, for instance, where this is not completely true, where it will, it will be changing the rate at which it heats to some extent. But mostly when, you, when you, you get home and say it's 65 inside and you say, that's too cold, I want it to be 68 or 70 or something like that, then, then just set it to the temperature you want and it'll go there. And it, but even, even setting it to, to 72 or 74 will kind of inspire the situation where you forget about it. And then you real, then someone said, why is it so hot in here? Oh yeah, I said it, I said it like that. And then don't and do that. In the flip-flop game. Uh, yeah, yeah, don't do that. Don't do us, that. Us so, as humans typically want immediate satisfaction, right? But we're used to not, you know, like yeah. earn it, you know, like, or, or the thermostat is not like your, your accelerator in a car, you know, it's not like that. So, you know, but we think of it that we want it to be like that. It's not like that. So mostly it's not like that. Right. And I've, I've definitely heard stories and have coached people in an educational sense of, you know, if you do this certain thing, if you open up your windows in the middle of winter because it's too hot inside your thermostat, is going to believe that it is as cold outside, inside, and you're just gonna get warmer air. And you put yourself in this cycle of um, not only making yourself more uncomfortable, but most people aren't aware of how these work. And maybe that's an educational 
opportunity. Maybe that's a hold on, let's slow down, let's actually figure out what is happening here and why you want this condition to change. Um, there, there are ways around these myths, but most of it lies in let's have a conversation and why this belief in myth actually exists with this person in the first place, right? So I actually think you bring up a really important point, which is what is it that causes us to decide that a temperature is okay or not? I mean, you know, let's say if it's 60, then you say, well, we can all kind of agree that's too cold. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. But, but, you know, when we get close, when we close in on 68, for instance, there are a lot of factors that kind of enter into like how, how okay that is. Mm -hmm. One of them is adaptation, how used to we are live, living with that circumstance. Uh, and then clothing, clothing, you know, uh, Oli Fanger and, and that entire work mm -hmm. showed that, you know, in the way we are clothed, uh, that matters and activity level matters. Have we just come back from a walk or have we been sitting in front of the laptop for two hours and we got colder? So, <laughs> or so, so forth. There's body mass. There's, I mean, I'm a very tall person, but I'm always cold and I just know that I run cold. So I have to make clothing changes and environmental changes. You know, since you're really tall like that, then um, there's a lot of surface area for heat exchange. Oli Fanger would be talking about, they'd say like, this human being is one that's, that she's got a lot of surface area to lose the heat from. <laughs> so, so, you know, so it's, it's volume to surface areas that right. ratio. Yeah. And we, for little yeah. heat engines, we, we are burn these vegetables and animals or whatever we're eating and we produce heat at a, what is it? Is it about a hundred watts? I'm trying to remember the number. It's around that. It dep varies depending on you know, what our activity level is like. But And with infrared camera, we can see it quite clearly. The other thing too is, believe it or not, uh, laptops and um, they actually uh, produce heat from the keyboard and you can actually feel that. They'll actually change the, the screen too. That'll actually change the radiative environment around. So, you know, we've, as species- We create we, our own little microclimate. We create our own little microclimate. Like, you know, we all know that, well, not all of us, but I love fireplaces. And of course they're, you know, they're, they're inefficient. They're terribly inefficient, you know, they've, they increase the, the infiltration rate of a building and you know, they create a lot of pollution in the neighborhood, but they sure are nice to be around. And so fire, fire is one of those things where we're, we're used to that. We've been around fire for a long time. And so that radiative environment creates a, a pleasant thing. And actually I, I um, have this working theory that's unproven, but I'll share it with you, which is that specifically with heat, that we actually like point sources of heat better than we like, what do you call, um, not vague. Ambient. Yeah, ambient. We don't, ambient heat is less attractive to us than, than, a, than a more concentrated point source of heat. I believe that there's something to that. And that actually is an advantage for a particular technology for heating houses, which are mini split heat pumps, because they create, they're like a small little box that mounts on the, on the wall not small box, but they're about a meter across, something like that. And they produce heat from that source in that area. 
And people were saying, well, that's not going to be good. People won't like that because they like central heat. But I'm not so sure because, I, you know, um, in my own house where we had both that and central, we decided that we like that better because it's nice to have the, the, the living room where that feeds into be um, something where it's kind of like a warm room. You know, it's just kind of nice. And then the bedrooms are remote from that and they're cooler. And what's wrong with that? Nothing. It's most people are happier having uh, the sleeping environment be slightly cooler than the daily work environment. So this is this is kind of things that we don't understand very well. So within the comfort science, we don't really know within our buildings what people prefer in different spaces for different activities. We don't. Right. We have. We may. Again, we can each develop our own guesses about that, mm -hmm. but I'm giving you mine, which is that they're with heat, that we may be more prone to a tendency to prefer ones that are more localized. And then also, uh, uh, we haven't talked about it, but this is some, a good, good um, segue, is these mini, mini split heat pumps, I think, are really terrific. Uh, if you want to save energy, and for another reason, too. Um, you want to save energy, they have no ducts. So ducts are, mm -hmm. I think one of the last things on our list is ducts are dragged. They're just a problem everywhere because basically you're, you're losing the heat where you don't want it. If ducts are in the basement, you're losing the heat in the basement. Maybe that's okay if you're down there, but mostly it's not okay. So ducts and they leak, you lose the heat or cooling. Many split heat pumps, they deliver the heat or cooling right where you've got the the indoor head located. And then the other, other advantage of them, say you have a central system and you install one, a mini split heat pump in a central location. Now you have a redundant heating and cooling system in the house. So if the central system dies, and there, we'll there are two- A little shred of hope. <laughs> more than that, you have more, you know, if you're around a mini split heat pump, you realize they can do a lot they can run a lot of the house. And so you're not really bereft at all. You're able to operate kind of normally. Um, mm -hmm. Then the other thing is, is about all uh, heat pumps and furnaces, there are two types, those that are working and those that won't eventually. So they're all, they will all eventually stop working. So it's used, redundancy is really a useful thing relative to heating and cooling technologies because we don't do well with that. One of the things that happens when, let's say your furnace dies or your, where's your air conditioning dies, what happens? You get on the phone and you say, I must have the air conditioner working now. And what, what would you want? It doesn't matter what I want. I'll take what's on the truck. I yeah. need it now, I need it today. It's either too cold, too hot. So what does that do? That means that rather than getting the energy efficient option, you get what they want to sell or what they have what they want to push so it's not a good circumstance if you have a redundant heating and cooling system then you say i'll wait for the right one because i can wait for the right one so you know this is an important issue relative to that so okay we, we keep talking about redundancy and the things that people don't know but a lot of it is patience is it not of 
yeah. but central systems and like large big complex systems just kind of happen and people don't feel like they have control over it but when when they're the ones that are in charge and they're in their smaller intimate environment that you know that it's there like I want this and I want it now and nobody can convince me otherwise is that just human nature or is that a residential residential wicked problem that um may not be factored into all these conversations that other people I think you're happen. answering your question which is you know we like that we mm -hmm. like having control and everybody has different temperature preferences so one of the great things about Many split heat pumps is there's something called multi-split heat pumps, and I have them in my own house, where you have a single outside unit and there are four individual heads in different rooms. Mm -hmm. And so you can be in your room and say, and my kids have done this, like, I want it to be 68 inside, even though it's summer. That's yeah. insane, but you know, go ahead. And then I don't like that. I like 77. So you can actually in the unit will actually do this nonsense for you um, in terms of providing, providing different preferences. Were you the dad in the household running around making sure everybody- Yeah, yeah, there is, the same? there is an issue, which is something you brought up earlier, which is how do we deal with the fact that people forget? Mm -hmm. They walk out of the room and they left it at 68 and they're not there anymore. Well, the nice thing about a lot of the new uh, multi-splits is they, they have a a sensor that will sense when someone's in a room or if it's dark, it doesn't change it. But during the day, if it senses that there's nobody around, it turns itself off or, or throttles back. Right. So, and so and most of us, you, you know, if you're interested in energy the way I am, you should say, well, it'd be nice to care about energy, but most of us really don't want to care about that. We have other things to care about. So um, and it's that's not a priority, not, right? It's not a priority. So, so, but being able to have temperature the way you want it in the space you want it leads to what, what I, less of what I call thermostat wars, mm -hmm. where people are going to the thermostat and they're nudging it just a little bit so that maybe he won't notice that I changed it. And then the, then the next day it's nudged a little more. And then finally, it's going back and then it's mm -hmm. like this is these are this is like disagreements so, um and this Who touched my i'm not making that? this up this really happens yeah so, so I, I was the one that was like nudging it warmer and warmer and warmer and my mom went to come by and just like no that should be 67 so so uh, uh, you know my 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 guess is since both you and i've had this experience i think that we would be if we thought we were original with this problem we're not so this this is a problem almost everyone has. And so being able to have space conditioning systems that um, allow additional personal preference is a good thing. Right. So we're talking about temperatures and cooling and heating people. I think looking at our list of myths here, let's just let's stay in the living room and talking about heating and cooling really quick and go into the topic of ceiling fans. We when we're talking about people's thermal preferences and all of the factors that go into that, we didn't quite talk about humidity yet and we haven't talked about air velocity. And do ceiling fans cool the room when we're not there? No, of course they don't. But people believe that. They, you know, they, um, they think, well, I'm leaving the ceiling fan on in the room so it'll stay cool. Mm -hmm. um, 
Well, it's backwards because the fan actually, the motor uses about oh, 25 to 50 watts or so. And that heat, all heat that's used in motors become, or all electricity that's used in motors becomes heat and it heats the room, actually makes the room warmer, doesn't make the room cooler. So fans make you cooler because you're under the fan and there's air velocity that's moving past your skin, which creates a convective heat transfer. And that actually, and evaporation from moisture from your skin, and that actually provides cooling. And that's why mm -hmm. it feels cool, and it is. Uh, so when you're around, if it's warm in summer and you've got ceiling fans on, yeah, they might allow you to uh, feel more comfortable or even perhaps uh, increase the thermostat setting slightly. And a lot of studies that were done looking at subjects in rooms showed that that was precisely the case, that if you had ceiling fans over people, they could really make big changes in thermostat settings. But we did measurements in real houses where we actually studied whether people did that. And the answer was no, they didn't. And why is that? It wasn't that, that the studies in the, the rooms were wrong, it's that people weren't stationary. They weren't just under the fan, they were moving around the house. Uh, so this is kind of the problem with studies. If you, if well, you had a study where you had studies where people were moving around and they would often end up ended up in a kitchen that was warmer than any other space in the house, because the kitchen tends to be the warmest space in the house because of heat from the refrigerator and also heat from cooking, mm -hmm. then, um, then you would find out that you would need a ceiling fan there and they're not practical. Right. Um, so you can't have them there. So, so ceiling fans should only be used when uh, you need cooling. And then the other myth to break up is the nutty idea that, oh, I guess it's not completely nutty, um, that people have that you can use them in reverse to decrease heating by reducing stratification. That might be true in a church where you have really high ceilings, but, but in the average house, it's not true. So don't do that. Move the fan <laughs> so that it's, it's sending air down and turn it off when you're not using it and you're not, it's not a cooling circumstance. And there's so much variation too in what is advisable and what's not. And of course, we're talking about your typical house and in the typical setting. Um, but I, and this is another theory and maybe another myth, a lot of people have ceiling fans and they may just leave them on because they think it makes their air quality better. Do you have any thoughts on that? It might, but I actually think it would increase dust mm -hmm. dwell time, right? Mm -hmm. If you believe dust is good for us, maybe it is, I don't know. So, but, but I, I you know, I don't think so, but maybe it is. Uh, the other thing is, I, I don't have this to cite, but there was a really interesting study done during World War II looking at barracks and the degree of contagion in, in soldiers in training. And they were able to find out that if they had radiator heating versus central heating, there was a huge difference in contagion. Mm -hmm. So why is that? Because the aerosols associated with bugs, mm -hmm. like flu or colds or COVID, um, mm -hmm. they stay in the air and they 
they do weigh something and so they settle out. But if we keep them moving and we help them stick around and then, then we help, then it gets easier to spread them. So I'm on the, I'm of the opinion that let the air become still unless you're, it feels too, um, I guess, um, stagnant or something right. like that. Yeah, so, you know, open windows would be one thing. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not, probably not a fan of just leaving fans on. I mean, you can say, you're not a fan I think of it's fans. romantic like Casablanca, I've heard that. So, okay, that's a decision. I'm not going there. Danny, my man is not a fan of fans. You mentioned kitchen. Oh, I am. I am a fan of fans. I actually, a long time ago, I designed a better ceiling fan. And yeah, I did. So basically, um, we re realized a long time ago that most ceiling fans were just flat. And I was wondering, why is that? Why are the, why are the plates flat? Why aren't they shaped? And it turns out there's no reason. So then I, I was studying... Um, the Wright brothers had the same question about when they were trying to figure out how to design propellers for airplanes. And so essentially flat propellers don't work well, mm -hmm. but propellers are, are their wings. And if you look at birds, you actually determine what the right shapes are for these things. And they studied that and then they ended up with shapes for, for wings and shapes for propellers. And we did the same thing. And, this was uh, 20 years ago, but that became uh, a technology that was licensed by the University of Central Florida called, I think it was called Gossamer Wind was a trademark they came up with and they sold, they sold millions of them, so it's good. So yeah. they, and they move air better. So essentially they're quieter, they move um, about 40% more air for a given motor than a flat blade would. So. Yeah. And that's looking at biomimicry too, of how does nature do things better than we could try to do them in our in our man versus machine way. Um, the hero in that, he's no longer living. His name is Paul McCready. So if you want to study this, he's he's absolutely fascinating person. Was a personal friend, Paul McCready. He worked for a company called Aerovironment that worked with me on designing that fan. So I after I decided, that, oh, we need to to know what the best shape is for a ceiling fan. I said, find those people that, that pedaled an airplane yeah. <laughs> ground. They must have had a very efficient propeller. And that was Bart Hibbs at Caltech. And he designed the ceiling fan for us. And that's what we, we came up with. And so biomimicry is really amazing because evolution has had a huge amount of time to make lots of mistakes and find things that work better. And so that's matters for us, for all our machines and our buildings too. So we can learn, you know, what nature, what nature is able to do with things. And um, that's always a good way to learn something. I'm gonna bring us back into different spaces of the house. Let's talk about kitchens. You mentioned earlier that obviously the kitchen being the hearth of the home, tends to be the warmest place in the home. And do we wanna give a little bit of background on why that is and what we can do about cooking efficiency? This is an important topic, not because cooking uses a lot of energy. It used to because people were cooking more, but still, if you look at the numbers, it's not very great. We don't, the uh, energy use for cooking tends to be pretty modest. 
but it's really important for a variety of reasons. Uh, when we cook, it produces heat, and that, but it also creates a lot of effluents from the cooking process itself. And a lot of those effluents are not good things to breathe. So mm -hmm. when you fry an egg, it creates hydrogen sulfide. Not good to, to have that. <laughs> so, um, and but it then, tastes and so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it'll be good, but you know, it's not good to breathe. So, you know, there are all these effluents that are created from co the cooking activity. So the, the important thing about cooking is having you know, an effective range hood to get that stuff out of there. Mm -hmm. So um, you need a range hood that has a good catch ratio so that, that, that the hood is actually over the burners and it actually is exhausting to the exterior. And it's certainly not one of the idiotic should be banned range hoods that send it through activated charcoal that stopped working years ago and shoots it back in your face in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Not, and it's noisy. So since it's noisy, no one's going to turn it on anyway. You need quiet exhaust fans that are, you can throttle with variable speed control. And they get that stuff out of the kitchen and they get it outside, outdoors, mm -hmm. so that you're not exposing yourself or the people in your house to it. And this is really a big deal, I think, because we're talking about human health. And you can say, well, energy, um, maybe I'm concerned about that. You should, but you should be concerned about the indoor air quality of what you're breathing. And I'm, I'm really firmly convinced about that. And if you do a lot of high temperature cooking, like, oh, I don't know, making general sauce chicken or something, where you're, you have really hot peppers, you need to get that stuff out of the house and everybody will know it because eyes will be burning if you didn't. So you need to get that out of there. So. So having an effective range hood that has a good catch ratio, and then and also using the burners that are that are to the rear, so that they are going to whatever that cooking is going on is going to go be going up. It's going to be the catch is going to be much better. That's important, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to know a lot more about this, there's a great researcher. His name is Brett Singer at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, who has done phenomenal work on on range hoods and how they operate or don't operate. And will downdraft range hoods, can that work? Well, yeah, not very well, but anyway, it looks good. <laughs> it, looks, it looks cool though, doesn't it? When it, it looks through. cool and it's like, yeah. So that's, I would say that's point number one for me is making sure that the cooking uh, is, that you're getting that stuff out of there. And that includes natural gas combustion too. Um, mm -hmm. We haven't talked at all about um, uh, emissions and certainly the push for electrification will see the desire to eliminate all natural gas use in all houses on the planet, I think, until we get things under control. There's, we just have to stop burning things and that's a tall order. But as much as I love natural gas for cooking, I'm probably, I'm going to get flack for even having said that. There are uh, some very good natural, uh, very good electric uh, cooking technologies. I think uh, induction cooktops are very, very good and very effective. Relative to standard cooktops, there have been measurements that show that they reduce the energy use needed to boil a given amount of water by about 18% or something like that. Yeah. 
And then within your own cooking, there are some other marginal things you can do. Like, believe it or not, your mother said, cover the cooktop so it'll boil faster. She was right. And so it'll, it'll boil 10% faster if you cover it. We've measured this. And then the, you'll be able to turn the simmer down more. So there are things you can do about cooking, but the most important one is to make, take, make sure that you're protecting the air in your house. So. And that's for long-term health and well-being, of course, for your family, but um, obviously for your own brain cells down the road. Any more about cooking and refrigerator heat? I know you mentioned is another large factor of why the kitchen tends to be warmer, um, but when you're cooking, we also tend to be a little bit more active. So there are ways we can be less sweaty in the kitchen, just have less Less, less cooks in the kitchen? Or? Well, the good range hood will, will get some of that heat out of there. That will help. I mean, one of the things is you want the most efficient lighting possible and bright lighting in the kitchen. So there's, uh, if you're working in a kitchen, then you, you, you know you always want as much lighting as you can get because there's a lot of activities, especially with cutting where you really need to be able to see well at what you're doing and you need very efficient lighting because very efficient lighting will be using less energy, be producing less heat as well. And you also want to, um, that, you know, you mentioned refrigeration. So uh, always one very important way around the world to reduce energy use in houses is to choose the most efficient refrigerator of the type and characteristics that you need. And only have really one of them. <laughs> that really matters. And it matters everywhere, and it matters so certainly that I that if someone believes it doesn't, we can just trounce that myth right away because it matters always. And there's I, I did I think in our myths that we put together, I, I did mention that when I lived in Montana, there you know there are a lot of hunters, and you say like, oh I yeah I have no, I have two freezers out there because I'm you know, storing the elk out there. But anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, well, you know, that's not going to stop that. You better be saving a lot of money or you better be good hunter or something to have extra refrigeration around to keep buy extra beer or something because <laughs> it, it costs you money to do that. And you know the characteristics of those refrigerators that are in the basement or in the garage or something. They're the old, the old beat up unit from before and they're are they energy star? It didn't exist then, you know, so yeah. they're, they're not efficient. So try not to have the second refrigerator, or if you do, then try to have a good one or a small one. You know, the, and if you've got an empty freezer waiting to, for something to fill into it, then, you know, unplug that thing and yeah. store it open. So make sure it's clean before you unplug make that sure it's refrigerator. Clean. Yeah, but. Excuse me, I did. Yeah, yeah, make sure it's clean and with the door held open, so that there's yeah. no, no problem with that. But anyway. Um, and I think that's more of a conversation too, of like, what is the value added from people's approaches to storing food? And are they gonna save money this time of year by, you know, and we talked about this earlier, like we like to garden, we like to make our own food, but what are the consequences and the energy implications of doing that long-term? And are you, are you getting that money back in other places where it may make it worth your time? 
Um, well, well, I, I would that's a say big exponential question, right? Yeah, it's it's a big it's. Imp I'm not saying that that's not important. I'm just saying it should be used. And then the other thing is, you can choose, like for instance, with, with um, if you're putting food away from mm -hmm. from summer garden, then uh, in your freezing corn or beans or whatever you're freezing, then you make sure that you you get an Energy Star freezer, a small one that's the right size relative to what your needs are, and you're not, and then you you feel like I'm doing it right. But you know, there's something marvelous about to me having grown up on a farm and grown up freezers there's something marvelous about go go to the freezer and get some peas and corn and bring it back you know and so and there it is you know it's something that was point put away and it's wonderful and delicious so the certainly not speaking out negatively against that it's just like the the fridge where it's holding a bunch of Bud Light and a few other things so the, um, the empty fridge besides three cans of soda and a 12 pack of beer <laughs> that's right yeah pretty much yeah so Okay, do we wanna move outside of the house? Maybe talk about roofing system, uh, solar on houses, some of the myths that people may believe uh, that are working against them. Well, let's see, on roofing, um, you never wanna do anything to the roof because it's like one of the most expensive things. So I have my own um, preferences on this, like I, I've done a lot of research looking at roofing and cooling because it really matters for cooling what the roof reflectivity is like. And that's because the duct system is almost always, in cooling related climates has almost always been up in the attic. And so that way you cool the air, then you reheat it in the attic, then you introduce it to the house, which means that you're, you lost about 30, you lost about 30% of the cooling that you had because the roof gets very hot. So one of the things in Florida that we found out in work that I was involved in many years ago was uh, that by choosing much more reflective roofing materials, you can reduce cooling use uh, in my climate by an average of 20%, so a lot. Uh, with many split heat pumps where you don't have duct systems anymore, probably half that. So a lot of the losses are coming from the duct system. But even in... Um, a heating related climate, there are issues associated with the roofing because you want roofing that is long lasting because you know we haven't talked about embodied energy at all in, right. in materials, but we both know about it and we know both know it's important because making roofing materials is an energy intensive process <clears throat> regardless of what they are. Uh, for a long time, a very popular material in the US has been uh, composition shingles. They're not my favorite because they they tend to age and require replacement after 20, 20, 25 years or something like that. And that seems like a big waste to me. And I do remember that uh, roofing consultants were asking me, why aren't Europeans more interested in our products, composition shingles? It's because any anytime that someone says we're making roofing products that last 30 years, it's like, we're not interested in that. We're interested in roofing products where they say this is like two or 300 year product. That's what, so tiles are by far, and metal are the preferred products in Europe because they look at, they don't look at buildings the way we have where you're saying is how long I live, right. my time horizon. You know, the, the idea there is typically the time horizon is your family. 
you know, I, I expect to have, you know, children and then those children will have children. And uh, I do remember once I was in Germany and I was watching these men um, remove roofing tiles on latticework and then they're moving and stacking them off to one side. And they were doing this. And I finally stopped by to ask them what they were doing exactly with this, these roofing tiles. And they said, oh, we're, we're just replacing the latticework underneath. We're just putting it, we'll put them all back. And these tiles were, they estimated these tiles were two, two and a half old. centuries old. They weren't exactly sure, but they yeah. were gonna use the same tiles over again. They were just replacing the wooden latticework underneath. So this is, to me, this is a big deal. So you, we wanna have roofing that's gonna last and and be robust. We don't want to have to mess with the roof. I'm a big fan of metal roofing these days, which is growing all over the world because it also makes it very easy to install uh, solar electric uh, PV panels because standing seam roofs make it easy to clip those on. And that makes it cheaper to install. Cheaper installations equal cheaper PV projects. And then that means that you're payback, the time to get your money back is, is faster. That's a, another thing, you know, and I guess maybe that's a myth, you know, so to bring up, which is, you would think in the Pacific Northwest, the guess would be, why bother putting PV on in the house in Olympia? It's too gloomy, but that's not true. So um, if you, let's look at, I'm looking at the amount for a six and a half KW, six and a half kilowatt, PV system, how much it would produce in Olympia versus mm -hmm. Pullman. So in Pullman, it would produce about 9,600 kilowatt hours a year. In Olympia, it'd still produce about 7,500. So it still produce a lot of electricity. And then how much is that? That's enough so that that would be meeting a large share of what your electric use would be, even if you had an all electric home. And so many people, I think, especially when we start talking about kilowatt hours and these energy metrics that, that starts to get into the territory of, oh gosh, I don't really understand that. I right, see okay. these numbers, but I don't know how to make sense of them. Good, um, But the context, the context of, you know, that's still enough to, to do this, this, and this. And people here, you know, sometimes like that's enough energy to power three homes or one home or your refrigerator. And I think they need those parallels to things they do understand to really make sense of all of this. Right, thank you. I'm sorry not to mention that. So for instance, the 7,500 kilowatt hours in Olympia, if you had a gas home, which you probably don't in Olympia, you probably have an all electric home, but that would mean that, but it could be either way because it, both fuels are being used. If you had mm -hmm. a gas home, probably, that would produce about all the electricity you'd need on average over the year if you had an efficient home. If you had an all electric home, you'd probably need um, more than that to, to, to cover everything unless you had a very efficient home. Although I, I don't have this to share within what I've done. If you do all these efficiency things, that is better insulation, especially a heat pump water heater that really cuts, heating water is still a major energy in use in uh, Pacific Northwest. So, but if you have all yeah. those things together, then you end up with that uh, amount of uh, solar electricity being able to cover a large part of your electric needs, 
then the other thing is six and a half kilowatts. How big is that? It's not that big. So most houses now, because PV panels are getting so much more efficient than they even were 10 years ago, that wouldn't be covering all the south side of the roof. If you did that, probably you'd have like nine kilowatts, you'd produce 50% more than that. So you'd be able to produce just about all you'd need for an average house over a year, even in Olympia. So one myth to get rid of is that in cloudy places in the Pacific Northwest, mm -hmm. PV won't work. We've had this going on in Florida, which was, at least was, known as the Sunshine State. But, you know, why did that myth occur? Because there are electric utilities that rather not see people generating their own electric power. Why is that? I'll let you decide. The reality is that solar electric systems are solid state. They're very simple. They work very well. And you can have backup battery systems. So you have like a house-based UPS system. Or you can, you can, can also charge your car. Roof? Yeah, especially if you have a fancy Tesla and we're talking about roofs. Um, I think this is also, it's, I don't want to derail us too much, but talking about like grid interactivity with people's individual houses and what that means. And of course, it's very different per utility and where you are. But if you're using all of your energy for cooling and stuff during the peak times of production, for you guys, that would be in the middle of the day. But most people aren't home during the middle of the day. So how do you view the, the home as a part of the grid? And is there any myths or advice that we have surrounding that to make, maybe it's for the touchy-feely, I feel like I'm doing something important purposes, but is there a right and a wrong way to go about trying to manage your home with, with the desires of the grid or the, the needs of the grid? That makes sense. Well, you bring up some really important things. So I don't think it, I would say more than touchy-feely, these are, these are dead on, you know, comments. Yeah. So, so here's, here's one thing to tell everyone, which is efficiency has an advantage in all these things. Why is that? Because it happens at precisely the time the energy is needed. When you have some extra insulation or whatever it might be that or the heat pump water heater, it is providing the reduction in energy use precisely when it's needed. Mm -hmm. When you have solar electricity, it's producing it when you may not be home, like you're mentioning. Now, if you have net metering, which allows you to take advantage of generating more than you use and getting credit for that, that's nice. And that allows you to, to, as an individual, to take credit for that over the year. But if we all do that, if we all start generating our own electric power, then that will no longer be a viable thing to do. We need to have some way of storing it. And they're probably the, my view is that will probably become more important as the, the entire economy is electrified so that you'll, you'll do that with, with automobiles because automobiles, although, you know, there's good reason to say, well, we should have fewer automobiles or what people less relying on it, on them, but it doesn't really seem to be happening. So we're going to have them, I think, and they're going to be increasingly electric powered and why not charge them during the day with the excess solar power that's being generated? And so that means they need to be charged at work 
or at the workplace or wherever you've got them. So you, you basically, you're going to, you know, there will probably be some kind of signal that goes out, which is let's all things with batteries know, hey, we've got extra power, please have it. And they'll yeah. take it and that would be good. And then the other thing with um, the fact that solar doesn't produce power when you need it is that increasingly vehicles may be able to help help us out with that by storing that power. Like for instance, the Ford F-150 Lightning can serve as a house generator, essentially, right. not generator, it's a battery. It can serve as a house battery that's available for you. And in, in my mind, this is the winning idea. This is the way to do it because um, although you can buy batteries for your house and have them, you don't need them most of the time, but you might need them every once in a while called an emergency. And then why not use this huge battery you have in your pickup or your car to provide the power that you need to run the refrigerator, your devices, maybe a plug-in mini split heat pump, this sort of thing. And so then, no, this is the way I view it. Then, then you end up being like, you know, we can manage with that. We'll be fine. But yeah. we need to we need to be flexible in terms of how we're going to deal with the power. But it is true that solar is generating it during the day. We're using it different times. And for heating, this is particularly difficult because mm -hmm. when does heating happen? Right in the morning when it's been dark, when it's the coldest, when the sun is the lowest. Right. And the days are the shortest. So in my mind, if you use some simulation like BOPT, uh, you set it up so that it, it basically is biased towards reduce my heating as much as possible because heating is really the thing that is in our human existence is coming from the fact that the, sun, the sun's energy is just not there. In my mind, probably we'll need not only wind and solar, we'll probably need nuclear as well to make a future economy work okay. Uh, but we need to be able to have all the tricks up our sleeve to make the grid so that it's as stable as possible and that we use our electricity and our batteries as efficiently as we can. Right, and talking about solar too, you know, when the sun's out, you don't necessarily need to use electricity on lighting. So thinking of our cars or vehicles and how we get from place to place and taking that energy with us, I'm just imagining like the solar parking garage, park and ride of the future and making you know, energy collection, collection stations of sense of sorts rather. Yeah. Um, is there any no, that's other, great. yeah, are there any other hot topics here? far as the, the homeowner being in charge of their own energy efficiency that you think we need to chat about before we kind of round this out? Well, you bring up one, which is a lot of people are thinking about electric cars because you're going to be thinking about electric cars because we have to go that direction. But one of the questions that come up from people often for me is they'll say, hey, I'm going to get an electric car, but I'm going to add solar electricity too. How much how much more solar electricity do I need to add to cover what my car is going to use per day? And how much is my car going to use per day? And what's that going to cost? Well, the answer is it depends, right? Right. It depends how far you go. But that would be true of gas too, right? So, mm -hmm. so if you say, well, you know, 
I'm driving from Pullman to San Francisco, you know, several times a week, then that's a very different answer from somebody that says, I'm, yeah. I'm going to campus. Yes. <laughs> My morning commute is usually six minutes and sometimes in the afternoon, depending on when I actually leave work, it could be anywhere from six minutes to 35 uh, with all the pedestrians and cars and traffic and everybody trying to leave at the same time. So that's a different conversation. But Right. But anyway, uh, let's make it let's depends make on your some, use is what we're trying to get to. <laughs> let's make up some numbers. So so let's okay. say let's say that. Uh, you're d driving 30 miles a day. That's high for me. I'm not driving mm -hmm. 30 miles a day, but but anyway, let's say that you are. Okay. And then, how much electricity does an electric car use to to go that distance? Well, it uses about it'll go about four miles per kilowatt hour. So that that gives you an idea of how much electricity you're going to need in terms of doing that. Then if you work it out in terms of like how much it's gonna cost you to commute for gas at 450 a gallon, which I looked at the prices in Pullman, they look like that's approximately yeah. right. That's, that's about right, yeah, right now. That's about right. So the cost of electricity in Pullman is around 10 cents a kilowatt hour, cost of gas is around 450. So thus our, our daily commute 30 miles is, is about a four, a simple, 450 for the gas car. The daily cost for the electric car is is about a buck, so mm -hmm. it's a almost a five to one difference in the cost of the electricity versus gas. And if so you that's drove, accounting for if we just plug that car right into our that's right. Yes, and, and also circuit, I've, right? I've um, four miles per kilowatt hour. I've changed it to three because we have inefficiency in charging and discharging. So Whatever just, mode your car is in, century. Hey, well, you, you gotta, you know, the wall, oh. the power is coming out of the wall, it's going into the battery, then it's getting used by the car. Mm -hmm. So that's there's inefficiency at those two steps. But anyway, take my word for it. I'm not cheating. So <laughs> so it's it's you know, you end up with three miles per kilowatt hour. So, but still it's a it's a dollar for the commute versus four fifty for the commute per day. Sure. So if you drove that um, that amount. For an electric car, and you so your your average bill for electricity would increase by about thirty bucks. Mm -hmm. And so, if you say, "Well, I need to add the amount of solar electricity to cover that, so that I don't, I won't see my bills go up by, by at all," you can put uh, then you have to put about uh, two and a half kilowatt hours of additional size up on the roof to cover that. So yeah. that's in Pullman. Yeah. And Olympia would be a little more. Okay, you know, well, here's another. A little less. I don't know. So, <laughs> yeah. And here's another factor, though. And I think I shared this like Pullman is very topographically interesting. We have a lot of large rolling hills and a couple of very small, big mountainous hills and buttes. So, even if, I mean, my car should be typically if I was driving on a highway and doing everything I probably should be. Uh, would probably get about 36 miles to the gallon. But because I drive three miles to work and three miles back, 25 miles an hour on campus, frequently stopping so I don't pay for somebody's college, my gas efficiency goes all the way down to 21 miles a gallon. So with the topography and the environment and the factors of it's, I want to say it's really simple math, but sometimes it's not. And I'm thinking about how people use 
their equipment or their cars or their homes and all of the behaviors that factor into that. It, the answer is, is really complicated, but people have to make those decisions for themselves and know all the facts that they possibly can to, to make an educated decision, right? Well, electric, electric cars are, um, they don't suffer those efficiency losses starting and stopping. Yeah. So, they, so they, they're pretty good. And in fact, when you drive them really slow, which you don't want to do because you're trying to get somewhere. But anyway, mm -hmm. um, they're very efficient going slow. Anyway. Gosh, and we could, we could talk about your Tesla for hours and hours and hours, but I'll just link all of your, your articles that you've shared with me in your companion documents. But I do see one last, or I guess question or myth of what is your number one piece of advice for residential energy in the home um, when people are in charge of, of their own climate and their own bills and what's really going on there and what what can we what can we close with before I give another spiel here? Well, I would say it would be the important thing I would say is don't be fooled by don't be fooled by such lots of things. So don't be fooled by payback. Don't be fooled by uh, even some obsession you might have with greenhouse gas emissions or what your favorite things are. You, we want to live in homes that uh, where we can be comfortable and happy, and where we can can hand them off to somebody else after we're gone, so that they'll say those people really did a nice job trying to uh, shepherd this building on so that we can continue to use it. And you know, that's, I would say that that would be my major piece of advice, which is try to, try to use things so that you can enjoy them. And then if you do that, and you can actually turn saving energy and, and having comfortable buildings into a pleasant hobby that'll pay you something. But it's important not to be fooled and to, to keep in mind the fact that the major function of housing is not just saving energy, it's actually to, to make us um, so that we can be productive and happy and lead good lives. Yeah, and I guess I have one final question, which you actually just kind of answered, but what makes a home run well for you? Probably watching for problems. <laughs> that, that doesn't sound very good, does it? But, but I would say, making the best decisions you can in terms of trying to set things up and being willing to make some mistakes. You'll try some things sometimes that won't work out as well as you thought and be willing to just say, hey, I've made the best decision I could at, at, at the time and uh, be willing to be flexible and change, change your mind. Mm -hmm. uh, be willing to change your mind uh, is always important in everything. And our so, houses are supposed to be homes, right? You know, they're, yeah. they're not just six walls. And Right. And by being able to change our mind about things, we, we kind of have a, an easier feeling about that, too. Right. Well, where can we find more information about you, Danny? Where would be a good place to look at your research or read some of your articles? Well, I think I, I have um, some things that I've shared with you. I have some... Uh, academic things that I'm doing with the Joint Research Center for the European Commission, I can I can share some of those, but I think there's people not aren't so interested. There are various things I've done while I was with the Pacific Northwest. There are lots of stuff I've done in Florida. I can send some links to 
various papers we've done that are associated with cooling and that sort of thing. So I'm Absolutely. happy to share any of that. Well, wonderful. So I will compile that information, put that in the companion document for those who are listening. And thank you, Danny, for joining us today. Thank we you really for appreciate having your expertise and all of the great conversation. It was a pleasure. Thank you to Nia and their Better Bricks program for sponsoring these podcasts.